And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. It is Friday, July 16th. The second half of the season is upon us. We've got some promotions to talk about. Jaron Duran getting a chance to to show what he can do in Boston. So we'll talk about expectations for him. Jared Kelnick is back with the Mariners, a surprising above 500 Mariners team as the second half begins. We'll talk about some futures game observations and get Keith's take on some of the best draft classes coming out of this week's MLB draft. Keith, how's it going for you on this Friday? One of the absolute busiest weeks of the year for you. How do you feel after getting back out there for a, a long trip and a, and a crazy week? Uh, it's exhausting. Actually, it's, I'm completely exhausted. I will say last night was the first normal night of sleep that I'd had since last Wednesday or Thursday. And then I wasn't wearing my Fitbit because uh, it was charging. And I was like, wait, if I don't have my Fitbit on to record it, did it even count? Did I actually sleep? <laughs> yeah. This podcast has been brought to you by Fitbit. <laughs> they should be a sponsor. They'd be a they great should. sponsor. Uh, let's get to the promotions first. Let's start with Jaron Duran. Uh, you and I both thought we'd see him in the big leagues much sooner than this. By the time people get to hear this podcast, he will have debuted in the first game of the second half of the Red Sox. They open with the Yankees. Expectations for Duran. We've talked about the added power from the alternate site last year that has obviously carried over at AAA so far. It's come with an elevated strikeout rate. But all in all, this seems like a a trade-off in skills that you would happily accept for a more well-rounded player and a guy that could be really a fixture in Boston for a long time. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited. I agree. I thought he should have been up quite a bit sooner than this. You know, for folks who haven't followed. Duran's story or any of what I've written about him, he changed his swing going into last year and has unlocked a lot more power. And there's probably some more swing and miss there, but frankly, there's going to be some swing and miss in his game previously. He hit really well in low A. He got bumped. I think he got bumped up to double A in 19. I hope I'm uh, getting that right. But, and then um, got a little overmatched there and there was some more swing and miss. And the problem was when he was kind of a slap and go guy, that doesn't really work. You've got to be putting the ball in play a lot more. And, now, even if he is still continuing to strike out at that kind of rate, he's got a lot of power and he destroyed AAA. So I'm pretty optimistic about what he's going to be able to do at the plate. And, uh, you know, it's not that the Red Sox need him specifically, but it's more production than they've gotten out of center field by a long shot. Yeah, the bar for Duran is actually pretty low. They've played Kike Hernandez out there a lot. He's had a nice season. Now they can move Kike around, maybe use him at second base. Uh, obviously, more of a super utility sort of, of skill set for him. Anyway, Duran could be that regular in center field, providing power, providing speed. A 143 WRC plus at AAA. A lot of projections pointing to a slightly below average player initially. But I would also say, as we've cautioned many times before, projections for a young player like this, especially one who had so much development occur without 2020 minor league games, they're going to be very, very noisy. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he actually held his own and was just kind of an average regular for them and was actually in the lineup as an everyday player down the stretch this season. Uh, Tanner Houck is back up too, Keith, and he was down with an elbow injury for a stretch. Didn't pitch all that well at AAA since coming back. How do you see him fitting in with this staff now that he's back up in Boston? Yeah, I've just got real concerns. He's got a great arm. I've just got real concerns about his ability to start because he's always going to have a weakness against left-handed hitters. He comes from a little bit of a lower slot. He's had trouble finding a consistent, uh, really, fourth pitch for for lefty, some kind of change up, or he could try a split maybe. 
he just doesn't have that weapon in his arsenal and he's going to be good enough against right-handers that maybe he could turn a lineup over twice. Maybe he could be a five and dive type of starter, but there are going to be certain lineups where they're just stacked with lefties anyway. And that's going to be a, a, I think a pretty significant problem for him. And if I'm the Red Sox, I'm I'm probably looking at him as maybe he's a depth starter option, but much more as a a long man out of the bullpen who occasionally be available for sort of tactical work against a couple of right-handed hitters. Um, And that's assuming he's really completely healthy and his stuff is, is where it was, but if the elbow is still bothering him uh, and we know that those things don't always go away just with rest and rehab, sometimes they do, but if that's still bothering him too, then it may be hard for them to find a way to use him um, to find a way to use him because they're contending specifically. This is not a developmental situation. They're trying to win. And so they can only deploy Hauk in a way that helps further their pursuit of that goal. Right. And eventually Chris Sale rejoins the rotation. So they become a little more crowded there. You know, Eduardo Rodriguez to me is a guy that could have a much better second half than first half. Evaldi's pitched well. Nick Pavetta has exceeded expectations. A lot of things have actually gone right for this Red Sox rotation. So maybe using him as more of a a depth bullpen arm, a bulk guy potentially when Garrett Richards or Martin Perez go short, that might be the way they use him as sort of a glue guy for the rotation, at least in the near future. I mentioned this up top, Jared Kelnick back up with the Mariners. He'll be in the lineup, I'm sure, on Friday to begin the second half for Seattle. Is it fair to think things will almost certainly be better this time around for Kelnick than they were his first time around? You really can't get worse, right? I mean, in the overall numbers this year at AAA have been excellent. He played even better at that level Going back down, the K rate is excellent. The walk rate is very good. He's doing damage. To me, it just looks like he's figuring out some of the things that he was struggling with earlier in the season. The Mariners are a surprise right now. I'm stunned that they're above 500. So uh, what do you expect from Kelnick second time around? I bet they're probably, I haven't asked them, but I'm going to say they're probably stunned they're above 500 too. Um, I don't think anybody thought the Mariners were going to be even within sniffing distance of contention this year. And I don't say that as a criticism, just didn't seem to be where they were. Um, yeah, I think Kalanick's going to be fine. Regression to the mean works both ways, right? He was not as bad as he looked in the small sample when he was up the last time. And that, that over streak at the end, obviously nobody's well, you know, maybe Tim Tebow is actually an O for hitter, but most most players are not actually O for everything hitters. I think Kalanick will be better. You know, hopefully this was I – mean, I think the Mariners even may have phrased it this way. It was kind of a mental reset for him. Uh, you, there's no indication that there's anything wrong with what we – what scouts saw of him, what projections saw for him. He's going to be a star. Maybe he's not going to be a star right away, but I think I said that the first time he was called up. I can't tell you what a guy's going to do his first – two weeks or two months in the majors. But I can tell you with a reasonably high degree of confidence what that Jared Kalanick is going to be a star going forward. Maybe it just takes him a little while to get there. Right. I mean, even Vlad Jr., who we talked about earlier this season, it took him a couple of years to reach the MVP contender level. But I think we went back three years ago and had a conversation about what you thought he was going to do long term. Projecting this type of ceiling was something you could pretty reasonably do. It's a question of how quickly he would get there. That's true of any player. And I think when Kelnick got sent down, I brought up Dylan Carlson as a, a, a similar case. We saw Carlson get optioned to the alternate site last year. He came back up, was kind of more like a league average sort of hitter, and has been around that level ever since. Uh, Gavin Lux is probably another good cautionary tale. Like Even if Kelnick's not a star right away, he's probably not going to fall on his face. And the Mariners have no reason to bail on him unless he's just awful, and he probably won't be awful this time around. Uh, part of what they've done exceedingly well is actually get quality innings from places we didn't expect them to. I mean, you say Kikuchi has been a lot better than he was in his first two seasons in the big leagues. Chris Flexen's been a nice add from the KBO. But Logan Gilbert, after a couple of bumpy outings to begin his career, has been really excellent. He's got the ERA in the low threes. Looks like a guy that is delivering on that potential, maybe even a little bit sooner than expected. Yeah, he was a command guy, uh, which... You know, I don't think there's any one easy formula. We like to say, well, this guy's going to have more success right away in the big leagues. I like to think that, but I think the truth is we don't really actually know uh, which guys translate the best. I mean, sometimes it's just, well, you don't have great command, but you got one knockout pitch that guys can't hit. Maybe those guys succeed a little bit more right out of the shoot. But I was just kind of optimistic that Gilbert wouldn't suck, right? That he was going to come up and throw a lot of strikes, good quality strikes with kind of everything he throws too. And if you look, he's like, he's been 
incredible at throwing all three of his secondary pitches at the bottom of the zone where hitters just aren't going to be able to do anything with them. You know, I thought his slider was probably going to be his best pitch. So far, it's actually been the changeup. He doesn't throw it a whole lot, but he's been dominating lefties with that pitch. Uh, and the fastball, well, the fastball is not exceptional in terms of velocity. Well, it's, he's averaging 95. I can't believe I'm saying that's not exceptional, but it's not exceptional <laughs> right now. It's just good. It's not a great spin rate pitch, but he tends to locate it really well. And I think the trade-off between his fastball and some of his other pitches, especially between his fastball and his curveball, there's just a lot of deception going on there. He does. He hides the ball well. He does just a lot of little things you really like. I really like. I think lots of scouts really like. And apparently hitters really don't like. The Mariners brought up a young catcher, Cal Raleigh, prior to the All-Star break. I'm kind of curious to see what his playing time looks like. Luis Torrens also part of the mix there, so maybe it's sort of an even split initially. But Raleigh was putting up great numbers at AAA, and compared to what he had done at AA back in 2019, I mean, I know like the league formerly known as the PCL, Tacoma, a hitter-friendly environment, take these numbers with an appropriate grain of salt, but you had a guy that was striking out just 12.6% of the time, showing some power. That's a really interesting bat for a catcher, uh, how surprised are you to see Cal Raleigh getting this opportunity and playing at this level at AAA? I like Raleigh, and the Mariners certainly like Raleigh. And even though you know he just doesn't really quite look the part, but he can, I think he can really hit. He's always had a pretty good approach. He, he's he might be one of those sort of three true outcomes type guys: walk strikeouts with some power. He may not hit for a lot of average. I'm trying to be somewhat realistic about it, and he's fine behind the plate. He's nobody's gold glover, but he's perfectly capable of playing the position. Uh, and yeah, I think he makes a ton of sense for them right now. It's a sort of an easy-ish upgrade offensively, and they can spot him a little bit. They can pick certain nights to have him or certain situations to put him in. He could give them another bench bat, and he really has nothing left to prove in the minors at this point anyway. So it's funny because I remember seeing him in, in college at Florida State, and he was not that highly regarded because he doesn't really look the part, right? We still, you know, we're not selling jeans here, but sometimes we still get hung up on that a little bit. And I looked at, I watched him hit, and I looked at his stats, and I said, what am I missing here? He's not that bad. I didn't think he was any kind of star. I'm still not arguing he's a star. But I think he's fine. He might be able to be an everyday catcher in the big leagues. And like I said, all he's ever done is hit. And at some point, you just have to get that guy a chance. Yeah, you look at this team I mentioned above 500. Five over 500 going into the second half. The projections aren't buying it. The projections have them as an 80-win team. At the deadline, I wonder if they hold a lot of their players and just keep giving young guys who they think are ready opportunities. If they get lucky and they end up competing for the second wild card, great. They're a year or two ahead of schedule. More likely than not, though, they probably spin away a couple of those veteran relievers, try and get a little more young talent for those guys, and continue to keep an eye on the future. Because I think as you look at that division, the Astros probably hold off the A's. Things could happen, but I think the Astros are clearly a better team right now. We'll see what the deadline brings for those two teams. And I would say I'm much more confident in the Angels getting healthier, becoming one of those second wildcard threats out of that division than I am confident that the Mariners, with their current build, can hold their position and actually hang around deep into September. Yeah, I would agree with pretty much everything you just said, actually. Um, I would like to see the Mariners spin off some of those relievers. They're not going to trade prospects. Well, they really shouldn't. You can never say it with Jerry DePoto, right? He gets itchy and suddenly he's going to make three trades before dinner time. But I really doubt they're going to do that. They've got the best farm system they've had in a very long time. They've traded effectively. They've drafted effectively. They've had some hits on the international market. They're going somewhere pretty quickly. And they're, they're, they've got the makings of a pretty good big league rotation that's going to be almost entirely homegrown. So I, I think this is a stand pack kind of deadline, except like you said, spin off some of those relievers, some of those, you know, essentially extraneous pieces that aren't going to make a difference to the long-term Mariners plan. But, you know, maybe you get a, you get a lottery ticket kind of player in the low minors at that point, or just somebody who just fills a need. I mean, the Marco Gonzalez, Tyler O'Neill trade at the time was sort of like, well, we don't need this guy and we don't need this guy. So let's just swap them. And obviously both, you know, I don't know which club they probably both tell you they feel good about it, but you know, maybe it's a trade like that. They trade a reliever, they get an extra hitter who just doesn't fit with his current club and can find some hidden value that way. So I know you're not a gambling man, but if you had to bet on number of playoff appearances, 
Mariners versus Angels. Let's just say for the next five seasons, thinking about the overall the overall build of those rosters and the farm systems there. Who actually makes more playoff appearances in the next five years? I would say the Mariners. I just think the Angels, that's no slight on the Angels front office. They're just in, not in a good spot. And the fact that the Angels, okay, it's a little bit of a gimmick that the Angels took only pitchers in the draft this week. But also, they really need pitching. I mean, the system is just utterly devoid of pitching again. And when Billy Epler was GM, he tried to get some pitching into the system and had some quick successes, some, you know, the Griffin Cannings of the world. But, um, you know, there were, there were injuries. There were pitches, who, p- players who just didn't work out. Um, you know, they, now they have Reed Deadmers coming with the Angels, but there's a lot. They're just further behind. That's really what it is for me, is that although they have two players on the Major League Club who are better than anybody on that Mariners club right now, the Mariners have a lot of pitching depth that is in the majors or very close to the majors. And the Angels just don't. I just think they're further behind. It's going to take more time for Perry Manassian, who's the GM now in Anaheim, to build up that kind of pitching depth, to build up a Major League playoff caliber rotation. Yeah, the Angels roster is so top-heavy, and I just... I don't know where they're going to get quality innings from in these next few years. Obviously, they're trying to build up the system, like you said, with all those arms, but that's going to take some time. And then if you're going to try and find free agent pitching, you're trying to trade for it, that gets really tricky as well. Very difficult to find arms that way, too. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to the Futures game and get some of your observations from that. I think Brennan Davis was sort of the the guy that grabbed some headlines, had a two-homer game. He's 21 years old. He's been in double-A for most of the season. He's pretty clearly, I think, the Cubs' best prospect right now. Good numbers across the board, 274, 388, 478 for the slash line, a 142 WRC plus, and given his age for that level, that's really good. The K rate's close to 30% right now, but he draws walks, and I think the tools have never really been in doubt for the most part. I think it's a question of maybe the hit tool coming along to be good enough for him to be a well above average regular in the long run. If, If that happens, he's a special player. If it doesn't, he's a flawed player, but one that probably spends a lot of time in the big leagues. A couple of questions for you. The first one, how much of a pass should we give minor leaguers for elevated K rates in the first half of this season, given the layoff a year ago? Because I think it's really easy to look at a 30% K rate at double A and say, oh, that's not good. A lot of guys, they don't have a lot of success with a K rate like that. My instinct is to give a, a pass and kind of see what the second half brings before passing judgment. Do you think we should be cautious about evaluating the first half performance from just about every minor leaguer this year, given how strange last year was. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think we should be giving them, actually, I would be giving guys a pass on the entire season. Obviously, I don't want to see guys have, you'd like to see some improvement, right? The second half should be better than the first half. Um, That would, but if guys, especially for a lot of the guys, um, Latin American players who got stuck here, 
during the stuck in the United States, but weren't able to play because of MLB rules last year. So they were physically at or near the alternate site or at the spring training site, but unable to play. I mean, that's the worst situation of all. Those guys just lost a whole year of everything. So maybe it takes them a whole year to get back on track. It's not true for every single player. There's no universal truth about how the pandemic and the lockdown based loss of the minor league season, how those affected players. But I think we are seeing enough evidence here that some players were really adversely affected. Guys who seem to be marching on up to the majors are not marching up to the majors or are having their first extended struggles. I would just want to see, and this would be true if I were still in a front office, I'd want to see improvement in the second half over the first. All right. May and June were, you were here. All right. Let's see improvement in these specific areas in July and August. Be upfront with the players. This is what we're looking for you here. We're not looking for you to just suddenly flip the switch and in July and August, you're exactly the player you were two years ago. You can't pretend that the lost year didn't happen, but you'd really like to see some improvement. And that's true of a lot of, uh, there are a lot of pretty significant prospects where I've noticed they just got off to starts that I didn't think were possible or that I would say, oh, it's small sample size. And you look, oh, it's two months. It's a medium sample size. So where are you at uh, on Davis now that you've, you've had a look at him? I mean, what do you think the, the long-term ceiling really is for him? Yeah, I think he's a potential star. I thought so going in. I think so now. You know, the home runs were both pretty impressive. At the same time, um, it was Colorado and the ball was definitely flying. I don't know which baseballs they were using. I'm assuming those were humidor baseballs and not the home run derby unhumidorified baseballs. <laughs> um, but the ball was definitely carrying quite well on Sunday. So I don't want to overrate it. But at the same time, you know, those were two pretty good bombs. I mean, we saw a bunch of guys really get into some uh, into some hard hit balls, many of them home runs, and often off pretty good pitchers, or at least off pretty good velocity. So I, I'm not taking anything away from Davis. It He showed me exactly what I wanted to see. And to see, you know, it looked like the power was coming two years ago before the lockdown. And so it's kind of nice and reassuring to see some of that in a situation like this, where generally most of these opposing pitchers they faced were pretty good. There really weren't many bad pitchers in the game at all. We'll make this question sort of a fill in the blank. Davis is the Cubs' best prospect since blank. Bias? Bias was after Chris Bryant, right? I'm just trying to get my chronology right, but yeah, I think so. Yeah, so a player to definitely be excited about uh, if you're a Cubs fan. Uh, one of the other observations for me from the Futures game is just Reed Detmers really makes sense as someone who should debut during the second half. We just talked about the Angels. They could make up some ground, a healthy Trout, a possibly healthy Rendon, a possibly healthy Justin Upton. Joe Adele's been striking out less at AAA. They have a, they've got a lot of reinforcements they could possibly get from the IL and from their system. And Detmers is on that list too. What is left in his development before he gets that chance? What do you need to see from him before you'd say he's major league ready? I'm not sure there's anything at this point, honestly. I mean, Detmers being up to... Detmers was pretty close to Major League Ready coming out of college. But because he only had made the four starts last spring, you know, you just wanted to see him pitch somewhere, right? I mean, he would have gone to the minors no matter what. I'm not saying he was a straight-to-the-majors guy. But I would have said, if we'd had a regular season last year, I would have been saying, just send this guy to double-A. Don't screw around, right? Just This guy's as close to ready, especially command-wise, as it gets. Then he goes out this offseason and picks up really about five miles an hour in terms of the top end of his range. So all the same stuff still applies. I'm just now more optimistic about his ceiling. I thought he was, well, he's mid-rotation star. No, actually, he might be a number one at this point. It's four-pitch mix. He's up to 97. He's got a really good changeup, and he's got superb command. So let's go. I would just move this guy as quickly as possible. I would absolutely consider bringing him to the big leagues sooner rather than later. It's the Angels, right? They always need pitching. They will will always need pitching. Uh, they have always been at war with East Asia. So I think, you know, it's, the only hesitation I have, you know, the Angels run into the problem that it's not the PCL anymore. I'm going to call it the PCL till I die. But some of those PCL parks, they're just not great environments to develop, to develop players in particular. I wouldn't want to have him spend a whole lot of time there. And maybe, you know, if he just got yeah, their Salt Lake and have him go there and potentially maybe develop some bad habits, react poorly because a couple of balls, a couple of, you know, he made, make some really good pitches. They end up leaving the park because he did, he did give up 10 home runs in 50 innings so far this year. Does he go to Salt Lake and the home run rate gets completely out of control? I mean, the ball seems to be juiced everywhere anyway, but Salt Lake is a, it's a worse environment for pitching than Anaheim is. 
So that's the only thing that I would hesitate on. And maybe they just decide, you know, forget AAA. We're just going to bring you right to the majors. Um, I wouldn't argue with that at all. And I think, again, a guy with his command, I'd be willing to take that risk. Yeah, given the the polish and the expectations that he was going to be pretty quick to the big leagues coming out of last year's draft, I think you could justify skipping AAA. Worst case scenario, he gets hit, he goes down, experiences AAA for the first time in August, and you at least took your shot if you're the Angels. You did the thing that gave you the best chance of helping you close that gap and possibly make the playoffs here in 2021. I feel like I buried the lead for the Futures game relative to all of our expectations, but your first look at Jason Dominguez happened over the weekend. Uh, what were your impressions as you got to see him? Yeah, um, he was totally overmatched. That's not a huge shock. Right? He's 18. He had something like nine pro at-bats before the Futures game. He was there because he's famous. He was not there because he was the best prospect for that environment. Um, I actually wrote in a, when the rosters came out, Anthony Volpe, who was the Yankees' first-round pick two years ago and has emerged as a potential star on both sides of the ball, shortstop and at the plate, he should have been there instead. And Dominguez was there because he's famous. He is. He's absolutely famous. He's one of the few prospects that casual fans probably could name. Um, he's really big. Like, you don't see many 18-year-olds who look like that. And he looks pretty athletic, certainly very quick twitch, but he was not ready to face that kind of pitching. And I don't blame him. I th- he punched out a couple of times. He did hit one hard line drive directly at the third baseman where he actually, I think Dominguez actually got fooled on the pitch, but swung so hard that he was able to turn on it and still managed to pull it to the left side. I, I'm i not offering any judgment on him, right? I can't make or change an assessment based on this because that's a terrible look for him. He's 18 facing a bunch of pitchers who are 21 to 23 by and large and who have better stuff than Dominguez has probably ever seen in his life. I think a lot of people out there will look at Dominguez, hear the hype, you read the reports about him, and in their minds put him on a accelerated track like we saw with Acuna or Juan Soto or those very special players that just cruise through the minor leagues. And it just seems unfair to do that to anybody, no matter what the tools look like at a young age. Would it be fair to say that if you had to put a timetable on him right now, it's at least three years before he's in the big leagues. If he gets there sooner, amazing. But does he need a kind of standard amount of time for a player this young? We don't know. Right? The true, the best answer is we don't know if he's actually an accelerated timetable type of guy. He's got to play a little bit more. Even when Fernando Tatis Jr. was um, emerging as one of the best prospects in baseball, before you know the Padres moment they got him, they thought they had gotten a potential star. But he hadn't played yet. And even after that first summer, it was, well, he looks really good. But, you know, I think I am in my top 50, not my top 10 out of that first summer in the AZL. It was only when he got to low A, it was, oh, okay, this guy's going to get there real quick. Um, I think the same was probably true of Vlad Jr. It was just so easy to look at the body and say, well, 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 you know, hold on a little bit. We got to see where he's going to play. And can he get the ball in the air? And after lots of questions that were answered once these guys got to full season ball, at least. And I think the same is going to be true for Dominguez. He's going to get a month or so in full season ball, and we'll get a little better sense of how advanced the bat is. Um, You know, if he's, you know, if he struggles these next six weeks, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with him as a prospect, but maybe he's four years away as opposed to say two years away. Cause when he was drafted, uh, sorry, not when he was drafted, when he signed originally, I had scouts who even picked a few holes in him, who were talking about how the body's too mature, he's too maxed out already, I'd still take him. He might be in the big leagues at 19. So there are a lot of people who thought he'd be a quick mover. We just have to see some actual evidence, I would say. Yeah, and if you you see a a 140, 150 WRC+, if he's that much better than the competition in his first taste of low A, that's more comparable to that Tatis-Vlad Jr. sort of track. But I think having that proof really goes a long way toward even being comfortable making a projection on his estimated time of arrival in the first place. 
Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Let's talk about the MLB draft, though, Keith. This seemed to be a wild one. I know in listening to the Keith Law Show and producing that show the last couple months and a lot of the interviews you've done and, and reading about this draft class, there was not a lot of certainty in the order early on, but this seems like it turned out even more bizarre than people expected. Is that a fair general takeaway from what happened throughout the first round? Yes, because it was funny when the first couple picks happened, we get Jack Leiter to, you know, Henry Davis one, he was second on my board. Jack Leiter two, he was first on my board at one point earlier this spring before he'd missed a start. And okay, Colton Kowser goes fifth, but we all knew the Orioles were going to do something wacky and they were going to try to save some money somewhere. And then Frank Mazzucato goes seventh. And that was the first indication. Whoa. And I like Mazzucato. I absolutely do. But he was not the seventh pick in this draft for me. And I'll have my Royals right up up on, uh, on Friday for subscribers. But look, that pick was out of nowhere for me. And then we had a couple others like that. Sam Bachman, who a lot of teams were scared of because he'd missed a couple of starts with a sore shoulder and came back slowly. And what are the doctors going to find? He goes ninth after I thought there was a chance he didn't go in the first round at all because of medical concerns. And when all it took was a couple of those things. And next thing you know, Kumar Rocker's falling at 10 and Khalil Watson is falling to 16. Names that a lot of people thought were going in the first round ended up not going in the first round. Some fell even further. Will Taylor who one of the best pure athletes in the draft class ended up not getting drafted till the 19th round, which means he's going to go to college and probably get his brains beat in playing football. So it, there were a lot of big surprises to me. And, and Taylor, in Taylor's case too, there were a lot of rumors he had a deal in place. He turned down workouts with certain teams, which turns out, I think in hindsight, to probably have been a bad decision on his part. But there were a lot of shocks, which is good. Right? We need the draft to be interesting. We want the draft to be interesting. All chalk is not interesting. It might make my life easier, but it is not interesting. Bachman over Kumar Rocker for the Angels. I think you could say, well, the Angels didn't really expect Rocker to be there. It wasn't an impossible scenario, but that strikes me as odd given what we were just talking about. Their overall need for pitching really at every level. Rocker seemingly being the better guy. Yeah, I mean... It's we, don't, we don't put this on video, but yeah, it keeps doing the uh, the money sign right now. I mean, that's did the Angels do well enough with their other picks 
where you could say the combination of players they got by taking Bachman over Rocker ended up justifying that decision? I would say probably not just because of the fact that the you, you passed on the best player. And Sam Bachman's good, right? I'm not I just set him aside completely. Bachman's t- two pitches were as good as any two pitch combo of any starting prospect in this draft. Um I, you put him right next to Rocker, though. There's just no comparison for me, um, and not the least of which is Rocker hasn't had that kind of health question, health scare. And I look at what the rest of the Angels did in the draft, and obviously I'll write them up. So I haven't written that one up yet. Um, there's guys I there are guys I like here. There are some pretty interesting. You know, they're 11th and 12th round. They actually kept going for guys who were still prospects instead of just taking college seniors for money reasons. Actually, in 13th round, they took Mo Hanley could have gone in the top two rounds out of little Adrian college in Michigan, but uh, he blew out. So it's a Tommy John guy. Take that guy in the 13th round. I'm assuming he's going to sign. That's great. I like their approach a lot, but you don't get a lot of chances to take Kumar rockers and to just let him go by when you constantly needed pitching. I think both of these things are, can be true at the same time. The angels had a pretty good draft. They still should have taken Kumar rocker. Yeah. You you could do well and still make, small mistakes and time will of course tell if yep. that was actually a mistake or not it just looks like a, a mistake based on expectations for those players and Bachman's health track record that you mentioned I, I think lighter to the Rangers at two obviously a guy that could have gone one one that was a bit of a, a twist though because so many mocks had Jordan Lawler going there and that's just what started the process of shuffling things around one thing I've come around on with the Rangers, Keith, I know they've had a ton of injuries with pitching prospects over the last couple of years, but in terms of pitching development and finding guys who have exceeded expectations at the big league level, that seems to be a skill that they have. Part of that's the way the new ballpark is playing, but it kind of goes back to signing Mike Miner as a free agent a couple of years ago, taking that chance on Lance Lynn, who they, of course, flipped for Dane Dunning. Kyle Gibson is a guy that's getting uh, giving them a ton of mileage right now this season, right? The, they're maybe a little better with upper level pitching or big league caliber pitching than people give them credit for. Uh, how do you see lighter kind of fitting into the mix in Texas? Yeah, he is, you know, assuming he stays healthy, just to, not for any specific reason, just that obviously they're all pitchers. They can all get hurt. They haven't had a guy like that in their system in quite some time. I think where they've had a lot of trouble with guys getting hurt. They tried this new, throwing program a couple of years ago and it, a bunch of guys blew out doing it. That's long gone at this point. Lighter is just plug and play, right? He is, he's not that different than Detmers in the sense that Lighter probably should just start next year at double A and you should be just looking at your watch constantly. Like, is it lighter time? Is it lighter time? Is it lighter time? <laughs> like he, sh- he should be up soon. You're not really trying, you're not trying to change kind of anything. I think you may be trying to refine to get a little more consistency to, you know, could you make the change up a tick better? Could you get a little more consistency on the curveball? But the fastball's there. It's hard enough. It plays. Hitters don't hit it. He repeats the delivery. He throws strikes. You don't have a lot to do. You really shouldn't be changing anything significant. Who knows if he'd even listen, right? His dad was a reasonably successful big league starter. That's always, I don't know how much Al is involved, but also I could just imagine Jack saying, wait, you want me to do what? I'm just going to go ask my dad, okay? Like he, <laughs> he did this. But I just think it's funny because I actually had them taking rocker not lighter in my last mock and the logic was basically the same like you got a pitcher who's you know could pitch near the top of a big league rotation maybe not a one but a two and he probably gets there pretty quick and you have all these other high school arms progressing through your system why not take a college guy who's probably still the best player or one of the best players available but also just gets there a little bit quicker so you're not just adding to your high school pool of high school pitching, which I don't like taking that high in the draft anyway, and you're just waiting forever for a guy like that to emerge. So I uh, I had the right logic, just the wrong name, but I like the pick for the same reasons. Same reason I thought Rocker would have been a good pick for them. I think Leiter is too. The other early twist, of course, Jackson Job going third overall to the Tigers. You've talked about him as the best high school arm in this draft class, but I really, I'm scratching my head. Like things, the other things they could have done with that pick all made a lot more sense to me. Did the overall plan with the Tigers come together in a way? They got Ty Madden, they get 32 overall, which ended up being a pretty big steal in the eyes of many people. 
does this work for you or should they have gone a completely different direction with Job? Like what happened here? Yeah, I, okay, so I, again, trying to separate the opinion of the picks from the players. Like Jackson Job was the best high school pitching prospect in the class. His stuff is absurd. He's a great athlete. His dad's a PGA Tour golfer. He's he's really good. I would never take a high school pick, pitcher at pick three. Uh, the base rate for high school pitching in the first round, they get hurt more often. They don't make. They fail more often. They get to the big leagues but don't succeed more often than any other category of player. You just don't take them, especially in the top half of the first round. That is essentially how I've taken what the evidence says, which basically says don't ever take high school pitching in the first round. With the reality, which is that well, you got to take somebody, right? And they will the world at some point be a. Uh, your pref list, your draft board at some point is going to have a lot of high school pitchers left and not a lot of, say, college position players who you like at your pick if you pick 20th. So I've always said our right, top half of the first round, especially just stay away. That's pick three that everybody's still on the board, right? All the uh, all the college pitchers, but one were still on the board. Marcelo Mayer, the high school shortstop, who I think pretty much everybody by the end of the spring, we'd all agreed he was the best player, best prospect in the draft class. He was still on the board. I am just really befuddled by that. And I will say this. I said all springtime Madden probably wasn't a first rounder. I didn't think he was a first rounder on merit. I thought there was a good chance, maybe 50-50, he didn't go, wouldn't go in the first round. And he didn't go in the first round. And so for me, that is, um, yeah, it's fine value where they got him. It doesn't justify, I think, reaching for a high school pitcher in the first round. Now, what they did do, though, second round, they took a, probably a first round talent and a hitter named Isaac Pacheco shortstop from just outside of Houston. And then the third round, they took a very projectable college pitcher. That's usually not a thing. Usually we talk about college pitchers being more finished products like we were just talking about with lighter, but Dylan Smith from Alabama, he hasn't even begun to fill out. And frankly, I don't think he's even really begun to scratch the surface of what he can be as a pitcher. He's a bit as a, he's a bit of a project. He may not move as fast as college pitchers usually do, but I really like that pick. I thought he was a borderline first round talent so I could even argue, I like what they did in the second and third rounds more than what they did with the first two picks, Time Madden being a supplemental pick between the first and second rounds. I think what they did in three and four is is probably the, the highlight of the draft for me. Yeah, I think what's wild here is that Boston ends up with Marcelo Mayer through all this. And I think it was pretty clear. You talked to John Tomase about the Red Sox and their early draft pick and everything, uh, geez, two months ago now. Feels like it was a long time ago. We knew they were going to get someone very good in that spot this seems like even the best case dream scenario outcome for the red sox absolutely oh i think they were ecstatic i don't know how much they knew this did they know in advance this was going to happen there were certainly scenarios where it could happen but because i'd heard all spring detroit had mayor over job obviously that's not true right they had job over mayor so i didn't get good info i don't think anybody else had mayor getting to the red sox either because we all thought that's who the tigers wanted so if you're the Red Sox, you're probably mapping out lots of different scenarios for how the first three picks can go with really there were six names who could have gone up there. And, and the, the three who went ahead were all part of that group of six. But so many of the plausible combinations of six names included Mayer going. And so that was the big surprise to me. And obviously the Red Sox are ecstatic. They got the best player in the draft, the consensus best prospect available. And I have said Henry Davis who went one, he was like 1A for me, right? If you, it's almost just, what do you want? Do you want the college player? Or you want the high school player? You want the college player? Take Henry Davis and be, be very glad you did. You may get the best prospect in the draft. If you want the high school player, take Mayer. I had put Mayer just slightly ahead of Davis. And the biggest differentiator for me was that Mayer's definitely a shortstop. There are enough people I know who think Henry Davis is going to have a hard time staying behind the plate. I am not one of them, but I try to listen to other people who do this, who know better than I do. And there was a mixture of opinions on that. So, you know, for the Pirates, I think the Pirates did great taking Davis. I love Henry Davis. I think, obviously, I talked to him on my podcast back in the spring. I think he's going to be really good. But if the Red Sox want to tell everyone, we got the best player in the draft class, I'm not arguing. With all these dominoes falling a bit differently than expected, Jordan Lawler to Arizona instead of Khalil Watson. I think Khalil Watson to Arizona felt like that was going to happen. But with Lawler there, they actually had the choice. How much of a happy dance do you think that front office was doing having Lawler available at six? Yeah, I heard earlier, maybe a month ago, that that was their dream scenario, but they were just looking at the teams ahead of them saying, what are the odds that all of these teams pass? Now, I knew the Red Sox weren't taking Lawler. That turned out to be info that, that was accurate. And nobody thought the Red, the Orioles were going to take Lawler because just I think he would have cost too much money. They would have seen him costing too much money. They wanted to save at that pick. 
So it was one, two, three. Well, again, start planning out scenarios. Lawler goes one, two, or three in a lot of those scenarios, particularly two. Most people thought for a while there was a chance he was going to end up going two because he was the local kid and so many Rangers people had been seen at his games. Well, of course, because he was the local kid. Teams often get linked to the local kid in mock drafts. Um, they don't often take the local kid. Because you, you, I always say this, you don't get extra points for winning with local players. You just get points for winning. Um, and so just assuming they were going to take Lawler because he was local seemed like a, an insufficient reason to connect those two. But there were plenty of reasons to think Lawler wasn't going to get to pick six. And then there was the question of whether Lawler would be fine. You know, of course he should sign, but would he be, would he push back at all going six when he thought all year he was probably going one or two? Could he just say, I'm going to Vanderbilt instead where I'll be eligible in two years and then I'm probably going to be 1-1? I mean, yeah, that that crossed my mind. It sounds like that's not going to be the case and good for him. He should just take the money. But you can see lots of reasons why the Diamondbacks probably zeroed in on Watson, figuring Lawler just wasn't going to be available. And looking at how everything fell after this, I mean, Kumar Rocker to the Mets at 10. I think in the scenario you talked about, probably with Jonathan Mayo last week on your podcast, the absolute latest it seemed like rocker could go was 11 to the nets he wasn't going past that and more like than not it seemed like if there weren't a lot of surprises he was going to be gone before the mets picked at 10 so i would would probably put them on that list of teams that said hey this is great this worked out better than we could have possibly hoped with a player like rocker who has been under the bright lights at vandy do you think he can make the adjustments to being in new york a little easier than guys that would have played in lower stake situations in college. I'm of two minds on that one. Kumar Rockers faced the most pressure you could possibly face, I would say, as an amateur player. He's pitched in two college World Series. Um, And he's pitched well and he's pitched not well in those situations. So I don't think anything has um, tested him as much as what he's, what's been, um, what he's faced in those college World Series. At the same time, he's not always responded great in great ways to that on-field adversity. And I would even go back to high school where I saw him have trouble in a playoff start that ended his high school career. So I think there's some maturation to come too. And I'm not saying he can't do that. He's 21. We all, most of us grow up after age 21. But I would also not be inclined if I were the Mets to rush him to the big leagues, like I'm talking about with Jack Leiter, like I was talking about with Reed Detmers. One, Rocker is not as polished as those other guys. He has more upside. And two, we know he has to grow up. Okay, great. Let's put you in a situation. You always want to put kids in a situation where they're challenged, but have a chance to succeed. Do that with Rocker. Get him into that situation. Maybe a high A guy to start next year, double A by the end of the season, triple A beginning of of 2023, and then debuts that year. Maybe he's a two years away sort of guy, which is still that's pretty quick to the big leagues. That's not bad if that's what he's able to do. With all the shuffling, Khalil Watson ends up with the Marlins. Is this the best gift of all from the first round outside of Mayer going to Boston at four? I would probably have said Rocker first and then Watson second in terms of gifts. I mean, Watson was a top six pick in the draft. There was talk he could even go one in a severe discount. Marlon's got a tremendous player. He's a great athlete. He could stay at short. He can really hit. He plays hard. He runs. I mean, there's no downside to that. The Marlins have to be beside themselves at this point that they got a top six talent while picking actually in the back half of the first round. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable. In your NL East team-by-team recap, you wrote that if Watson were six feet rather than 5'9", he may have been a 1-1 pick in this draft, which just speaks to the tools and the talent there. And Do you think, over time, teams have become more receptive to players that do not have the prototypical body type that they want, whether that's a smaller player like Watson or an exceedingly tall player. You know, I think of like an O'Neill Cruz who wasn't a draft pick, mm-hmm. but an international signing. Are teams a lot more open-minded now about body types than they were 10 plus years ago? Yeah, I think so. Not completely. Um, Corbin Carroll went 16th a couple of years ago because he's undersized. Um, it was pretty clear all he's hurt now, but it's been pretty clear when he has been able to play, he should have gone in the top five picks. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we look back on Watson the same way. But that said, Alex Bregman, out of college now, but he was the second pick in the draft. He's barely taller than I am. 
So we have seen plenty of undersized hitters go higher. I think we feel more comfortable when they're coming out of college because we have data. We have two to three years of performance data. Now we have trackman style data, and it's better able to find evidence to get around the fact that the guy is small in baseball terms enough to make us uncomfortable. From an overall draft class perspective, any other teams that really sort of pop for you with what they're able to accomplish, teams that look like pretty clear winners, at least coming out of the draft? Yeah, I love what the Reds did. I absolutely love what the Reds did. I think they probably had the best draft, especially when you consider what they had. Now, they had two extra picks, one for losing a free agent who shall not be named, and one competitive balance pick. But man, they just went after it. And even deep into the rounds, into the sixth round, seventh round, still taking some shots on guys with upside. You know what? The opportunity cost is zero. The expected value of a seventh round pick is zero. By all means, roll the dice. Taking a Justice Thompson who can really play defense in center, he can run, and he can hit a fastball. And he's got one year at Division One because he was a junior college player. He may need some more time. You're probably going to have to work with him more on pitch recognition. But so what? In the, and he was the sixth rounder. In that spot in the draft, absolutely. Take that guy twice. You want that type of player. You want that type of upside at that pick, which generally has an expectation of nothing. By all means, absolutely do that. I just think the Reds absolutely crushed this. Yeah, those team-by-team recaps, by the way, are outstanding. By the time you hear this podcast, the NL and the AL will all be available to subscribers of The Athletic. If you don't have a subscription, you can get one for $3.99 a month at theathletic.com slash baseball show. A lot still going on. we got another episode of the Keith Law Show coming up soon. Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs will be the guest, so a lot more draft talk and prospect talk to come on that episode. You can hear me on Rates and Barrels and our full suite of fantasy baseball shows. If you're enjoying this show, take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review and tell a friend. And if you are a subscriber to The Athletic, we do have bonus episodes of this show and other podcasts that pop up on The Athletic app from time to time. If you prefer to get those on Apple Podcasts, you do need a subscription to The Athletic Audio Plus. It's just not Ninety-nine cents a month, and there's a free 30-day trial if you'd like to check that out. On Twitter, he's at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.